That's fun, hey? It's got a good beat to it. One of the uh, many amazing things that have been able to come out of right now, we've got John and Paige are working as our summer interns, is helping create uh, digital and artistic stuff for our campus online, helping out uh, the ministries I'm trying to do here a huge amount, and uh, helping out with the kids' ministries. And actually, for even our parent conference, MCBC as a whole, we've just been able to pour some of their skills into church ministry with their giftings. So really awesome. Thank you for that, John and Paige. So as you saw in that video there, Dallas Willard once said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life. And Carl Jung, a psychologist uh, even earlier uh, in history, has said that hurry is not of the devil. Hurry is the devil. We're all super busy. We're rushed. We have this cram more into a day than we can handle kind of mentality in our world. And that hurried kind of style of life is slowly killing us, and it's driving us further and further away from being a follower of Jesus. We're doing a study through this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by author and pastor John Mark Comer. And his whole point, I think, is so fascinating that often we get this sense that, like, evil is present in the world, the devil is present in the world with all the big news headline things, right? Like murder, and there's like identity issues, and sexual ambiguity, and uh, cultural political battles, and social divisiveness everywhere. But actually, I think we encounter the devil in our lives way more often through notifications that pop up on our phone, and addictive TikTok feeds, and this sense of needing to be busier and busier to be successful all the time. And so that's what we've been doing as a bit of this mini-series here at the church of taking a break from Galatians. We'll, we'll get back to there. We're halfway through this six-chapter book in the Bible. But I think I figured out, so a couple weeks ago, we talked about this idea of making a rule for life, a way to actually discipline ourselves to move away from that rushed, hurry sense of life. And as I was going through, I think I figured out a solution to all the busyness. What if, and hear me out here, what if we had four more hours per day? Right? It's so simple. And like with Elon Musk and his buying everything under the sun, and we've got Jeff Bezos and everything else going on, we can probably slow the earth down a little. Right? Four more hours a day, that would give us like almost one extra 28-hour-ish day per week. I think you could do a lot. Like what would you do if you had four hours extra in a day? Sleep more. <laughs> Actually get that eight hours, not just four hours. First thing I would do is start like intentionally running and exercising more again. It's like how many of you would be like, yeah, I'll exercise more if I have the time. I would read more as well because that takes some time that I just is not on my priority list regularly. I would practice some more musical instruments. I would try to figure out how to master. I've wanted to. My wife bought me seven years ago now, actually almost eight years ago, a banjo. And I was like, I'm going to master that thing. And I've played it like four times. And the harmonica, because how much fun would you be around a campfire with a banjo and harmonica? I would do that. I would catch up on all of the Marvel MCU TV shows and movies that I'm still I'm lagging behind now. I used to be on it, then I had a baby, and I don't get to watch TV anymore even. I'd do that finally. I'd finally fix my vehicles, not just with duct tape, but the right way. And uh, I, w I would spend some quality time with my family, with Leslie and Adia. I would do that there too, and maybe do some further education on passion projects. I would do some yard work, maybe some side work, and save up money for vacations, and I have blown that four hours. It's gone. And I think all of you can relate. Like, there's this pile of stuff that you're like, maybe if I had a bit more time, I could actually just do this stuff. 
But we will never, ever get past this sense of like, oh, I can fit more stuff into a day. I, I just need a half hour more and I can do it. We have this sickness of trying to fill our time. We have this thing of like needing to be physically and mentally occupied. Otherwise, the world culture says, what are you doing with your life if you're not busy? And actually, can you see the devil at work this way? The spiritual battle that's going on in our culture, this escapism, distraction, needing to just, you know, don't waste your life or waste any time. You have to do more stuff and be busier and busier. And if you don't have a to-do list, what are you even doing in your life, right? I actually thought a really interesting one with this whole busy sense, right? It's this thing called Netflix angst or entertainment anxiety. Maybe you've heard of it, but... So I'm young, I know, okay, but I even grew up having only like 28 channels on TV. And I think Channel 7 was like French or something like that. And Channel 1 didn't even exist. So like 25, really, channels. And I was like allowed to watch three of them. But then like my really rich friends had a huge, big, ugly satellite dish in their front yard and they got like, like 90 channels. It's like unfathomable. But then eventually as, you know, cable packages came, we got a bit fancier, we got like 80-ish channels at home and we had a few like discovery channels, stuff like that, but all my rich friends had better satellite, now they got smaller on the roofs of houses and there's like a thousand channels, right? But now Netflix, just one of several streaming platforms, I found some fun stats here, has a total of 75,680 hours of content currently to watch which would take you about eight and a half years if you watched it nonstop. So doable, still doable. You could do it, I don't recommend it. But we've got all you could ever want for entertainment. That's one of like five big streaming companies out there. And now here's the thing, how does this work in your brain, right? Like we've got all we want as people and we can watch TV forever. And then somebody comes up to you and says, you've got to watch this movie, it's so good. Do you get a little bit stressed? I, okay, I do, and maybe you don't, but I do. And somebody's like, you've got to watch this TV show. And I go, I don't have time to watch that show. I'm behind on all the other shows still. I haven't even finished The Simpsons yet. It's 35 seasons of that. It's like this almost, we have so much, and we seem to want to have access to more and more options. And actually, it doesn't work well for us. It kind of makes us a mess. Because at the end of the day, we're ruled by this limitation, this mess we have that we're in called time in our life. So author and pastor John Mark Comer, uh, author of this book, Red Book, which I do recommend. It's a really good, life-changing kind of thing that's in part being a guide to this study. He did this uh, study kind of through history, a bit of a quick overview he calls the history of speed or a brief history of speed. And I think it's really good. We can take a look at how humanity has just had this kind of progression towards trying to do stuff faster and busier and cram more stuff into our days, starting all the way back 200 BC with the Roman sundial, the first evil invention. So... And the direct ancestor to the iPhone, actually. You'll see the connections here. But playwright Plautus wrote this. Here's a really good quote. The gods confound the man who first, who first found out how to distinguish hours in a day. Confound him too, who in this place set up a sundial to cut and hack my days so wretchedly into small portions. So next time you're running late, use that quote. Quote an old medieval playwright. And uh, 
so this is the first thing that happens. We've now figured out how to section off times in a day from something that did have, like we had moments in the day, but we've now put numbers to it. That was the first thing. And then the monks came around, and in about the sixth century, well-meaning and well-intended, they started to create uh, forced rhythms and schedules in the day, all centered around prayer. Um, creating a structure of prayer to life. So they had seven times that happened and divided throughout the day. And then this brought the invention of the mechanical clock to rally the monastery to prayer around the 12th century. And so now we've got the first Casio. It was very large and very heavy, but that also became a thing to operate. We created a machine that guided our times. But most historians point out as the turning point for Western society's relationship and the change with time as about 1370 in Cologne, Germany, where the first public t clock tower was erected in place, center, up high, and now everybody is on the same schedule. Suddenly, and you got to blame the city council for doing this, suddenly people could say, you're late. You said quarter past nine, and it's, it's 20 after, right? Um, you're late to church all of a sudden. There wasn't just like the sun's about there, okay, I'm going to get there in the morning. There was no more of that. We had public unification on time. And what happened is days that used to revolve around a rhythm, not just uh, of the sun and the moon and the seasons, they were shaped by natural rhythms that we connected to our world and our creation with. Uh, now we were ruled by a machine that we created, something that was designed to help us, but now all around we actually have something telling us what happens, and it kind of ignores instead a little bit what would have been the natural rhythms and the seasons that change. See, you had long, harder working days in the summer, colder, slower days in the winter, just getting through it in, in the different seasons. But now let's just move further ahead, 1879, the invention of the Thomas Edison light bulb, which made artificial light simple and safe and widely accessible. There were lamps before, but you had to make sure they were primed and they were a fire hazard. You had to have fuel for them and know how to light them and maintain them. But now with the flick of the switch, you have light, all hours into the night. And this had a huge impact, actually. What they found before this time, before the light bulbs were just commonplace in houses, in uh, society, the average person slept about 11 hours a night. So whenever you're reading things from people centuries ago and they had these incredible prayer lives, they were up at 4 o'clock in the morning and you sometimes feel a bit guilty of, like, I could never do that. After like nine hours of sleep, like what else is there to do? So 11 hours of sleep at night. And nowadays, the average is just over seven hours. So within just over a century, we've had a 40% decline in our sleep. Humans can't adapt that well. It affects us. The trend here is actually not in favor of our sanity. We've tried to create these inventions and machines to help and you actually see when you take a step back, a big picture of more enslavement to machines and to the tools that we've tried to make and more detachment from natural elements and natural rhythms. Uh, in the 60s, there was a bit of a popular idea. One addressed to Congress said, by the 80s, with all of the technology we're inventing, we will be working 27 weeks a year for an average of 22 hours a week, just tons of time to play golf and go hang out at the beach, right? But instead, actually, compared to the 70s and 60s now, the average, and this was an American study, the average American works four more weeks a year and approximately about 45 hours a week on average. So we've lost that 
futuristic battle, unfortunately. But now to our current historical moment. In 2007 was a huge shift, almost like a choreographed release. Steve Jobs presented the iPhone, the evil sun dials ancestor way, way ahead. And the same year, Facebook was released publicly to anybody with an email address. After that, Twitter also became its own independent platform, and Intel made a dramatic shift in their computing processing design to metal chips, so everything became way faster to keep up with something called Moore's Law, so computer technology was huge. So what happened is we made this leap into the digital age. All happened in 2007, and in just a few years, we went from having no idea that Wi-Fi was like a pronounceable word to this, like, we have this expectation in the world. Actually, earlier this week, we were here at work. Um, I don't know if you experienced it, but Shaw had this huge outage, all the way from, like, Squamish to Hope, the whole Fraser Valley and Lower Mainland was out of internet if you were a Shaw subscriber for a while, different times. And you pop on to data on your phone, at least, because now you can do that. We're still connected. And people were losing their minds. Even here, I was like, what do we do? All of our files and all of our equipment is online and Shaw is down and now we can't stream the stuff we need to stream. It made this huge thing. So within just like a decade of time, we've completely become dependent on this digital age. And we slowly transitioned our understanding of natural rhythms and connections in the world to sectioning units off in a day, to then creating a mandated public uh, schedule in a community and a regimen, and then creating machines that now dictate that schedule for us. All of these inventions that have just helped us squeeze every last moment out of our day, and finally got to taking any remaining time and availability we had to be consumed by content, entertainment, and distraction with the digital age. So, don't get me wrong, I, I'm not actually against technology, I'm a millennial, I love it actually, I'm like the technology guy here at the church. And it's been a huge blessing to our ministries. This isn't a blanket statement saying technology is bad, but you actually can't deny the movement we've done as a species, as people, as humanity in time with our relationship to how we see speed and time throughout the world. It's gone from a natural connection, and this actually goes to Genesis with the created order and rhythm. God had this intention. He put us into creation, into this garden to work naturally with it, to now being ruled by these machines that we make. Harvard Business Review conducted a study, and here's kind of a bit more of a applicable how it affects busyness in our lives, what we've moved to. Uh, Harvard Business said, uh, what used to be considered wealthy and successful social status was leisure time. So you actually had companies like Rolex and Maserati would show pictures of relaxing on the beach and playing a round of golf at whatever hour of the day. Now, the majority of advertising actually shows success and wealth as being super busy. You're at a high-profile business meeting and then into the private jet around the world to the next big high-profile business meeting, and you're at the stock market at the break of dawn right until the end of the day trade of the trading time. And that is now the movement of what is considered good and proper and right and successful. This is a cultural movement that we've done. The world says be busy is actually a good thing. Does it make you feel like being busy is good for your life? If you joined us at camp, up at Camp Squia a few weeks ago, 
I kind of went through a list of symptoms for something that's literally medically diagnosable called hurry sickness. There was kind of 12 or about a dozen markers, and uh, I'm going to post those up this week as well. They're in this book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. But I, if, if you remember those things, I, I was reading them off, and I hated hearing it because I resonated with, like, there's 12 things. I was like, 11 of them. My temper is kind of in check. But everything else in my life seems to line up with hurry sickness, which uh, one doctor actually ascribed to being, like, the most common factor for early heart disease in our lives. This actually affects us physically, being way too busy. But here's the big mess, and, and here's kind of where we're going to dive in today. Christianity, and what I mean by that is followers of Jesus, Jesus being a man who you could describe him as a great teacher, you could describe him as the son of God, all these things, you wouldn't describe him as a busy man. He wasn't a hurried man. Uh, he was actually quite busy, but he was never in a rush. He didn't act like he was being interrupted. But followers of Jesus, Christianity has been completely caught up synonymously with the world in this cultural moment. Pastors have often been listed as on par with surgeons and lawyers in terms of job burnout and stress. And, and I'm guilty of this too in the church. Churches are often cultures of high expectation, high time demand, and creating burnout for people. Do more stuff, serve more, do more time. And, and you know, we do need volunteers to run and create ministries and reach people, but often churches are actually culprits of exactly this rather than taking the life of Jesus and speaking against that movement and culture. And the problem is because we forget that the church, not just our church, the church as a whole, the bride of Christ, is a counterculture. What that means is Jesus set up an example for us to actually live differently than how the world lives. What the world says is success and wealth and what's the normal thing. We're actually meant to live differently. One of the worst things that we actually do as Christians is try to take a look at the world and try to Christianize it and try to legalize stuff so that everything looks synonymously. Sometimes we put so much effort into just saying, let's make laws that make the world look and act more Christian. But Jesus' entire testimony and push says, you're never going to get that. And the world is actually going to be against Jesus. It's going to be against him. It'll be against you as a follower of Jesus. I think we see that actually Christianity in countries where following Jesus is against the law, it thrives because you start right away with this mindset of you're 100% against the culture, against the norms. You're already in the world wrong. And here we try to just instead legalize it. And instead we just say, like, I'm, I'm a Canadian. I'm normal like the rest of the world. And I just sprinkle a bit of Jesus on top. We're supposed to be a counterculture. We see things we do power differently. Jesus talks about this upside down kingdom. The first will be last. The last will be first. If you're poor, you're blessed and happy. What bizarre things. We do power differently. We do money differently. How many of your unchurched friends are super into tithing? How many of your Christian friends are into tithing? I'll even say that. Okay, we do money differently, and we, we see it as something that actually isn't even ours. It's God's blessing, and we pour it out as an act of worship. We do marriage and relationships differently. We do sex differently, so differently than, the, uh, just like, than what the cultural norm is. We do, or at least we should be doing forgiveness differently, soaked in grace and not just focused on fair and just. Okay, we, and, and that's kind of the whole point we do time differently, or we should be doing time differently. The gospel of Jesus inspires us 
to look at time and busyness and productivity differently in our lives. So what I want to jump into is from a book in the Old Testament of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. Uh, this is a book written by King Solomon, regarded as one of the wisest Eastern rulers of the time, one of Israel's kings. He wrote this book of poetry and wisdom after contemplating and receiving access to all the wealth, all the fame, all the power, all the liberties and freedoms in the world he could want, every indulgence, and he found it all lacking. It actually quickly made me think of this famous Jim Carrey quote, uh, and I could never imagine Jim Carrey or Ace Ventura being a philosopher, but I, Jim Carrey said this, he said, I wish everyone could experience being rich and famous so that they could see it wasn't the answer to anything. This is a little bit of the heart of King Solomon writing Ecclesiastes. So I'm going to be reading, it's a longer section, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting at verse 1, King Solomon is talking about time. So it just goes through this, and it'll be up on the screen too. You can open up your Bibles or phones if you've got it. Ecclesiastes 3, starting at verse 1. There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. What he's talking here is just, just everything. He's covering every topic he could. We could do a deep dive into this, but he just said there's a time, like there's this time for everything. He goes on in verse nine. He says, what do workers gain from all their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on, hum on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and, do, and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift from God, and I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. And the ending verse here is giving us the sense, and there's a little nugget in there too, the uh, of eternity. In verse 15, King Solomon writes, whatever has been and what will be has been before and God will call the past to account. Eternity is like the antithesis to our understanding of time, this bounded, sectioned off, scheduled, limited, Roman sundial, Steve Jobs iPhone thing. We have this idea of time and God actually has created humanity with the ability of eternity. We have this temporal present time here on earth and we have something so different for our spirits, for our bodies, for our souls in eternity. Second Peter verse 3, 8 in the New Testament, one of Jesus' followers and apostles said this also about time and about this idea of eternity. But do not, for, do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. Time doesn't line up with God the way we think it lines up in our own world. James, another one of Jesus' followers and apostles uh, in James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Verse 14, why 
You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? He says, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. I could really simplify this up. Time is kind of meaningless in God's eyes, in the realm of God's intentions for us. But that's a little bit glib. It's actually not a good interpretation. It's not a good teaching. It doesn't make me feel good. But there's something profound that we need to wrestle with when we see the world's view as time as finite, something that we need to wrestle with and wrangle and conquer and become gods over it. Um, God's view of time is eternity. God's view of time is to be intended with natural rhythms, with what he created, with our interactions with it back in the Garden of Eden, this natural design where there's not a start and an end. I love it where Peter just says, like, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like a day. Time suddenly stops mattering in the same way that we think we understand it. Because here's the thing. We can try to be as efficient and as... uh, effective and wrangle and conquer time so that it doesn't bother us and we're just on it. Some of you actually might be there like, I don't have a problem with busyness. I'm so efficient and regimented. My schedule is just set, bang on. But when we actually think about our lives, the, the, the reality is we have limitations in our lives that will always prevent us from accomplishing everything that we think we need to or want to do. We have limitations like we're limited by our physical bodies. We have a set number of years on this side of heaven, on this planet, and we age. And at one point when you might have been young, full of energy, but not big enough or strong enough to do something, and then you're finally big enough and strong enough, but your back goes out way too easy. Our physical bodies limit us. Our minds and our intelligence limits us. We learn and we grow and then we age and we forget. The Apostle Paul even says, like, our knowledge is limited. I... talking about God and faith and salvation and eternity, we can only ever know God in part because our brains are just literally physically limited at this point on this side of heaven. Our skill sets and our abilities limit us. Somebody is always better at something. Somebody has a gifting here. Somebody has high emotional intelligence. Somebody has high engineering brain and mathematical intelligence. But our skills and abilities, not all of you are going to be both rocket scientists and artists. It's not possible. Very rarely are you really good at playing drums and doing the soundboard, but we have Alex here who can do both. He's very talented at that. We're limited by our origins, the family you were raised in, the culture, the social setting that you were raised in, socioeconomic barriers. Uh, You had either advantages or disadvantages growing up and often massively out of of your own control completely uh, in our free world. Unfortunately, often the color of your skin gives you advantages or disadvantages. You have your origins as a limitation in your life, just as a reality. And your seasons of life, if you've got school, that's a limitation. If you're in lots of classes or college, if you have a big full-time demanding career, that's a limitation. If you have a family with kids, that's a big limitation. When you're retired, you have a little bit more flexibility, but you're limited on some of your other connections and resources. You have limitations depending on the season of your life. And here's the thing, these are not bad things. I wouldn't trade my eight-month-old limitation for anything else in the world, for even that extra four hours in a day. But the struggle is our cultural norm takes a look at limitations and says we need to conquer those. We need to, to the best of our abilities, wrangle and become like gods in our own life, have as few limitations as possible, 
master our ability to handle and wrangle time and uh, just become fully in command of everything that's going on, right? That's the North American dream as it seems to be portrayed. I've seen get-rich schemes pitched as uh, essentially your ability to break away from, you know, all your limitations in life. You will have no more limits. You can just be on the beach making millions of dollars, doing nothing, have complete control. You can leave everything behind. I've known people who have fallen for some of those who literally leave their families behind because they get bought to this idea that I just want control over everything in my life because for them, time is actually their master. They think they're mastering it, but the mechanical clock that monks invented, that's their ruler right now. So what if instead we take a real check of this idea that the church is supposed to be a counterculture? We, we take a look at the gospel and we say our goal actually is not to conquer limitations in our life, not to conquer time, but to actually live with our limitations like God gave them to us, almost like a governor to slow us down, almost like our family is meant to be there to pull us out from the ability that you shouldn't have three other careers and kids. Our limitations are actually blessings in their own bizarre way to reach people, to love and make real relationships with people. Last week, last time we chatted, two weeks ago actually, we talked about creating a rule of life and maybe you'd started to dive into that, exploring what it might look like um, with some spiritual disciplines following Jesus' lifestyle, not just appreciating the life of Jesus, but taking a look at how he lived and trying to live like that. But here's the thing, and John Mark Comer says this as a quote. Um, he says, even if you have the best rule of life, the best set of efforts and intentions and applications of spiritual disciplines in your life, the odds are you're so addicted to distraction, you're so addicted to uh, the idea of time in your life that probably your phone alone or your computer or tablet or digital habits or a TV show uh, will sabotage all of those best intentions if you're still fixated on trying to master time in your life, living like the world lives. One of the huge mistakes we do is take a look at, like, I'm going to live the way the rest of the world lives and do a little bit of the Jesus stuff. It's actually a complete different change, and it might make you look really weird in this world. I appreciate that Dallas Willard, um, one of the mentors to the author of this book, said that, you know what, actually trying to live your life slowly and slower would be similar to like taking a vow of poverty. It's going to make you step out of the cultural flow and be a little bit strange and bizarre. Um, what we need to do is actually make, live our lives intentionally different than the cultural norm of hurry. Stop trying to master time. Instead, live as if it isn't our ruler. It doesn't actually matter the same way the clock tower thinks it matters and take a look at time the way God sees it. Stop counting seconds. In the words of Henry David Thoreau, who he went out to live in the woods for two full years in order to slow down and simplify his life, uh, he has this idea about being deliberate of unhurrying your life. He said this, I went into the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not when I came to die at the end of my life discover that I hadn't lived at all. We need to live deliberately. And the Bible, the gospel accounts that recorded the life and actions of Jesus, what many of the gospel writers call, we call it the gospel, they simply called it the way of Jesus. It wasn't this prayer and go to heaven. It was actually living the lifestyle that Jesus lived, living by his examples. 
they give us a they give us instructions to this. It's what we're going to actually be looking at the next four weeks, and a bit of a teaser here this morning. God's design and intentions for our lives is to counter the norm of the world, to counter the busyness, and to counter hurry. So, author John Mark Homer points out four essential disciplines that Jesus lived his life by. Things that he regularly did went well beyond habits. They were things that were core to everything Jesus did when he needed to connect with people, when he needed to connect with God, his whole being. There was four practices he did. They were his main ways of staying rooted and grounded in something called shalom, which is easily translated as peace. But a bigger meaning is complete peace, like peace with yourself and your own sanity. You don't feel stressed or full of anxiety. Peace with yourself, peace with the world around you, like literally the earth and literally all the people around you. People aren't your enemies, and if the guy's driving slowly in front of you, they're not your enemy, and you can actually have peace with that person who cut you off. And then peace with God that we need so desperately. So the first one he did is he practiced Sabbath, what might almost seem like an old religious-y practice, um, something that's just this old tradition, but actually so important. We're going to do a deep dive into this on a Sunday coming up, but the reality of actually taking an entire literal day off. And it doesn't mean not doing anything. What it means is a day off of trying to be productive, trying to just work for whatever it is, the next big house project or building your own equity or whatever, but actually just being present for yourself for your family, for people around you, and for God. Sabbath. Jesus practiced Sabbath without question, and it's recorded all throughout the Gospels. Jesus made space for silence and solitude. And this isn't just a thing of being introverted. I'd argue that Jesus was actually quite uh, extroverted. That word was gone from my mind a bit, not in my notes. It's not just an introverted thing, but we need to be able to actually remove ourselves from the noise every now and then. And if you're introverted, it might be a little bit easier. But Jesus was a people person. He was constantly around people. He was in the crowds. He was in the noise. And one of the things that Jesus did regularly is stuff was going good. He was like, crowds were gathering. He was trending on Twitter. And instead, he's like, let's get out of here. I need a break. Some silence and solitude. Rather than the world's like, you're going good. Like, skyrocket that thing. Go for the next bigger thing. Silence and solitude. Third thing is simplicity. Jesus lived simply. We have so much stuff and we try to make our life so complicated and I'm a huge culprit of it because we don't need, you know, a smartphone and then a backup smartphone and then a third smartphone for your baby monitor and a smart watch and a few smart speakers around the house and everything including your car battery chargers scheduled. I'm actually just confessing right now. I'm sorry. We have busy lives. We have stuff like crazy and Jesus actually says like, take your coat, take your shoes, and go. What is the minimum that you can actually be happy with to pursue your passions and you don't need to store stuff up? One of the darkest things uh, the author here has pointed out is the fact that the biggest growing industry in North America is storage lockers for all the stuff we have that we don't even use and has to go into a storage locker. Really good business to get into right now, by the way. Huge rent per square foot income. Simplicity. And then the last one is literally slowing down when everything just seems to go, like, let's go faster, let's do more, let's increase that speed, right? Like, live at 100 miles an hour. Jesus literally slowed down. One of the most bizarre and amazing stories is this time where, recorded in the Gospels, one of Jesus' closest friends, some people came to said, hey, your really close friend Lazarus is sick. 
come, you can help him, you can heal him. And Jesus is like, okay. And he waited two days, which is bizarre. I would not be waiting if my wife needed to go to the hospital. I would break every speed limit law on the way to get there as possible, right? My Jeep would limit me a lot, but I wouldn't wait. And Jesus waited because he's just lived intentionally slowly. It's weird. It's bizarre. But here's a freebie because I want to actually give you something you can practice in your life to slow down, to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. It's, it's just an easy one-syllable word. Uh, Anne Lamott famously said, no is a complete sentence. Sometimes it's all you have to say. Uh, a few weeks back, here's a perfect example. A few weeks back, I was led astray, tempted terribly by sin and evil spirits. I was sitting down scheduling volunteers for the church for a worship and kids ministry and sound booth and stuff like that. And uh, there's a Sunday that was really short-staffed coming up. And so I called up Alex, who had been on for the previous six, probably actually like 18 weeks straight, back to back to back. And I had given him the Sunday off. But then the temptation got the better of me. And I called him up and asked if he was up for serving. And he said no. And I was so proud of him. I was, so, I was so relieved. Like, I shouldn't have even asked. And he said, no, I, I want the Sunday off. Thank you, Alex. Way to go. That's actually, that's good, because who am I to throw that on? You can say no to stuff, right, without being a jerk about it. <laughs> Be delightful, you know, even maybe, like, push it off for another time. Saying no is actually one of the easy ways to start taking back a little bit of time for your own sanity, for your family's sake, for building relationships with people around you, for building time into your life for God. What a concept. You can literally say no to actually change the way your day is going to go. And, you know, it's not just isolating everything. What I appreciate a couple weeks ago, we talked about what Jesus called the easy yoke, the yoke of Jesus. doesn't mean doing nothing. This isn't an excuse to be lazy. This isn't an excuse to detach from the world. This is a call to say, focus your life on what are actually important core values in your life, on Jesus, on yourself, on those you love around you, and to actually stop just filling your time with things that are just busy work so that the world thinks that you're successful and wealthy and that you're doing enough of the stuff. So you could say no. All of these things will set you against the current flow of the world, and maybe that's the point we need to focus on right now. Maybe we shouldn't look like normal, successful Canadians all the time. Maybe we should actually look a little bit like what a bizarre community that's actually taking time for themselves. Man, the rate of depression is way lower in churches. Wouldn't that be a cool stat? But instead, there's actually very little distinguishable differences between church communities and the rest of the world around us. But I guarantee attempting to live without hurry in your life will open you and me up to loving ourselves and loving others and loving God better than maybe we have ever experienced in our life before. I'm just going to pray, and then uh, we'll just have a benediction and it off. God, you set a bizarre standard for our lives that sometimes we're so distracted from the world, the world's message and the world's norms, we, we don't get it. But thank you for God sending your son Jesus to live an example of how we can live. God, something that is a bit of a model, the way of Jesus. God, I just pray that you 
help us look into our lives how we can adjust and change things. God, maybe give us the chance that we could say no in a loving and gracious way, God, maybe not to kids' ministry, but to something else in our lives, uh, God, that we could say no to to give us time to be with you and to be with our spouse or our family or loved ones or ourselves even, God. We just need time to restore and break. God, I just pray that you bless everyone here, everyone joining us online, that we can dive into this, is this idea to ruthlessly eliminate hurry with the goal of coming to know you better, God, to be better followers of you. God, I just pray that you go with us into this week as we impact and bless people, and that we can take this message too and try to impact our coworkers and our friends and people who don't know you or get you, but we can show them something different, an alternative to the current flow of busyness in our world. God, we pray all this in your name. Amen. I just want to end off with this from uh, Gospel of Matthew, just as a verse to send you off with. Um, words coming straight from Jesus. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, uh, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds in the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable to God than they are? He goes on and he says, and see how the flowers of the field grow. Do, they do not labor and spin. And yet I tell you, not even King Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, and they'll just be eventually cast into the fire, will he not much more clothe and care for you? So can one of you any one of you add a single hour of your life by worrying. God loves you so much and you are so much more valuable than everything else that he has in control in the world. So go with that, have a great week and let's work on unhurrying our lives. Thank you so much.